Hello, I'm Dr Richard Dunley from the University of New South Wales, Canberra. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. After the 2003 Gulf War, naval operations in the Northern Gulf were far from over. Upon completion of hostilities, Australia's warships transitioned seamlessly to work with the new Iraqi regime, and on 16th July 2003, switched to Operation Catalyst, Australia's commitment to multinational efforts to develop a secure and stable environment in post-war Iraq. Over the next six years, the RAN separately rotated another 15 frigates through the region for periods of up to six months. Still heavily involved in interception operations, the crews of the deployed ships continue to conduct routine boarding operations, together with the more general need to keep watch on all maritime traffic entering and leaving the country. The most important task, however, was to provide around-the-clock protection for the infrastructure vital to Iraq's economic recovery, particularly the two oil terminals, Kawar Alamaya and Al-Basra. In addition to the deployment of major fleet units to the Gulf, Australian naval personnel contributed to the events surrounding Iraq in other ways during this period. This included members of Clearance Dive Team 3, who performed a variety of ordnance disposal tasks, and RAN members of the Iraqi Coastal Defence Training Team, who were engaged in training personnel of the new Iraqi Navy. Most significant, however, was the contribution of four senior Australian naval officers who were appointed on rotation to command all coalition maritime operations in the northern part of the Gulf from 2005 to 2009. We are fortunate to have three of those officers present with us today to discuss the RAN in the Gulf in the years after the Iraq War. They are, firstly, Rear Admiral Stephen Gilmore. Steve, who retired from the RAN in 2017 after 40 years' service, commanded Task Force 58 in the Northern Arabian Gulf between April and August 2005. Embarked at sea in a US Navy cruiser with a small RAN staff, he was responsible not only for the conduct of all maritime security operations in the Northern Gulf, but also the integration of Iraqi forces into the task force mission. He was the first Royal Australian Navy officer to command a task force in the Gulf and later served as Commander Australian Fleet from October 2009 to December 2011. We also have Rear Admiral Alan Dutrois. Alan retired from full-time service in 2016 after a naval career spanning over 40 years in both Australia and South Africa. He commanded Combined Task Force 158 in the Northern Arabian Gulf between September 2007 and March 2008. He previously served in the Gulf as RAN Task Group Commander as part of Operation Slipper and as the first non-US officer to command maritime interception operations enforcing sanctions against Iraq between November 2001 and March 2002. Finally, we've got Rear Admiral Bruce Kafer. Bruce has been a full-time and part-time member of the RAN for the past 44 years and continues to serve as a not-very-active active reservist. He served as commander of Combined Task Force 158 in the Northern Arabian Gulf from October to December 2008 and as commander Combined Task Force 152 from January to April 2009. From 2009 onwards, the Combined Task Force 152 area of operations encompassed almost all of the uh, Arabian Gulf. Okay, well, we'll start with you, Steve. Um, You were the first Australian naval officer appointed on rotation to command coalition maritime operations in the Northern Arabian Gulf as part of Combined Task Force 58. 
As one of the RAN's most senior seagoing commanders in a combined task force since 1945, can you explain a little bit about your role and responsibilities as combined task force commander, how the command relationships worked at this time, and the forces generally assigned to you in order to undertake these uh, maritime security missions? Thanks, Richard. Uh, Before getting into the detail of of an answer to that uh, question, uh, I think it's worthwhile highlighting uh, up front that... um, There is great significance in Australia being chosen to provide uh, a senior commander in in this coalition operation. Up until that time, um, the the leadership role um, was uh, by the United States, a flag officer in command uh, of Task Force uh, 58. Um, The the US doesn't randomly uh, or readily um, choose... Uh, someone from another nation or another nation's leaders to command their people in uh, in an operational circumstance. So it's great testament, I think, um, to the RAN and the reputation that has been forged over a long, long time and recognised by the US that they chose Australia first. I, I happen to be in the right position at the right time to be um, uh, the, the lead um, of several Australians to, to fill that role. But I think that it, it's an important thing to, to highlight. The roles that we had um, were, um, were, were quite uh, broad um, and we spent much of our time in our pre-deployment period conducted at uh, the Maritime Headquarters under the guidance of uh, Comflot and the Fleet Battle Staff uh, trying to understand the totality of the mission that we were about to uh, to undertake, and um, uh, we recognised very early uh, that it was a, a, a most complex maritime environment with a with a significant uh, threat um, that uh, was extant. And indeed, only a year prior to our deployment, um, we had uh, we saw the um, uh, the tragedy of the the firebolt, the US uh, USS Firebolt, um, uh, United States patrol vessel uh, working in the Northern Arabian Gulf that was attacked by insurgents and a number of, uh, of sailors and coast guardsmen uh, were killed as a consequence. So it was right at the fore of our mind uh, that this was uh, a very active, complex, dynamic um, circumstance that we were going uh, into. Um, we, um, we felt that we were very much uh, equipped um, for that task um, on reflection. We, we're an experienced Navy, well-trained, um, and uh, uh, we, we readily um, understood uh, what it was that uh, we were uh, being asked to achieve. I will say, however, that the first um, uh, key point that uh, drew my attention uh, and concerned me from the, the beginning was that uh, this was no longer an exercise activity or a short-term operation where there was a ready start and finish point. We were going to be part of something that was at the strategic, uh, that had uh, significant strategic importance as well as uh, tactical uh, relevance, um, but was a long-term campaign. We were in it for the, the, the long term. We were carrying a baton. We weren't going to finish something during our time, and we had to uh, we had to develop our concept of operations around uh, that that understanding. Um, we. Uh, it is an area where there isn't just threat from uh, from the insurgency, which I've mentioned previously, 
but it's an area that uh, for decades, for hundreds of years, uh, has seen much unlawful activity in the maritime environment, uh, piracy, uh, illegal immigration, etc. So we had to accommodate that in the way um, we uh, set up and developed um, our part of a long-term um, campaign. Uh, it, um, it, the coalition environment, of course, was something that we also had to uh, accommodate. Um, we're good at engaging other countries and working with other countries, uh, but to do that in a formal sense and um, uh, incorporate other countries' rules of engagement, etc., into how you conducted business as a unified unit um, was, uh, was another a great challenge. Um, the assigned forces that we had um, throughout uh, were our flagship, which was the United States Navy um, cruiser, um, which I and my Australian team embarked in. We always had at least one um, frigate on station, either an Australian or a British Royal Navy frigate. Uh, it was not unusual to have a large amphibious or support unit from the US Navy or the UK's uh, fleet auxiliary. And on any day, four, maybe five uh, patrol boats from the US Navy Coast Guard and increasingly towards the end of our time there um, from the Iraqi um, Navy. We also had aviation units, special warfare detachments, and I suppose uh, at its peak around uh, 1,800 people in the task force. Wow. So uh, quite a, a considerable force force being deployed. Um, thank you for the mention of a firebolt there. Um, we will hopefully be covering that uh, in a, a future podcast because it is such a, uh, an important part of, of this broader story. Um, just following on, Steve, can you give us a little bit of a feel about what the forces under your command were actually doing on a kind of routine day-to-day -day type basis? Indeed, as I mentioned before, it's a uh, very complex dynamic task, so there were a broad range of activities. Uh, we split our task force uh, command team into into two not long after we um, arrived uh, on station in recognition of the diversity of day-to-day -day activities. We had a strategic level um, uh, team which focused on activities such as working uh, with uh, the Kuwaitis, with the Iraqis themselves and uh, coalition forces ashore. This was vital to, uh, to uh, better understand the overall environment and to work together uh, as a coalition, um, any threat to the task force uh, and and uh, the oil terminals that were our principal um, uh, focus uh, would come through um, uh, either another country or down through the Al Four Peninsula. So vital to maintain and grow those relationships. Uh, at the tactical level, um, we were there to to uh, to principally uh, protect the oil terminals and deter. Uh, insurgent uh, activity and uh, and illegal activities such as piracy. Um, so we we uh, we conducted sort of parallel four lines of, of of effort in parallel to to prosecute the the overall mission. With one final and vital um, aspect that we we began and uh, and I think has been handed over um, over the the subsequent years. And that was the um, developing an Iraqi Navy transition roadmap. At the end of the day, uh, we all wanted to see the Iraqis take responsibility for maritime security. Um, they had a fledgling, small fledgling uh, naval service of uh, five patrol boats, inshore patrol boats, 
and we began the task of mapping out how they could be initially incorporated into the task force, then begin to replace coalition assets, and then ultimately take command um, of, of the entire activity. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Alan, moving on to, to you. So you served as, as the first non-US officer to combine, command maritime interception operations enforcing sanctions against Iraq in, in 2001. What had changed and what had remained the same when you returned to command Combined Task Force 158 six years later? Well, certainly back in 2001, the focus was very much on maritime interception operations, enforcing UN sanctions against Iraq. And that was all about stopping the illegal flow of oil, making sure that the Oil for Food program, which allowed legitimate export of oil out of Iraq in return for food shipments and essential goods, that, that all occurred. When I was back there in 2007, the focus was very much one of maritime security and stability. And as opposed to now, you know, enforcing it against Iraq, this was working with the, the new Iraqi Navy, which had been all but decimated during two Gulf Wars, and this was helping them to get back on their feet. But the key issue here was the defence of those two Iraqi uh, offshore oil terminals, which between them generated about 95% of oil exported out of Iraq, and that in turn accounted for about 80% of the gross domestic product of, of Iraq. So you can just see how important it was to the reconstruction efforts ashore. And as Steve has said, an important part was being able to train up the Iraqi Navy so they could legitimately take back what was ultimately their national responsibility to, to maintain that. If I look back then to 2001, as far as command arrangements were concerned, as a task group commander operating at sea off a US ship at that stage, my boss, my task force commander, was sitting way off the Pakistani coast in an aircraft carrier. He was a carrier group commander as the commander task force 50, and he in turn then reported to the commander of the 5th Fleet in Bahrain. What was different in 2007 is that as the task force commander, I was co-located with my task group commander together up in the uh, Northern Gulf, working directly to the commander 5th Fleet in Bahrain. And the other substantial difference, which differs even from Steve's time, as we'll hear, uh, was that rather than being embarked in a US ship, we were on a, uh, a, an accommodation barge, which was known as the Ocean Six, which sounded like some exotic uh, US uh, Hawaiian movie. But effectively, we had a containerized operations room on board this accommodation barge, which was abutted up to the Mayer oil terminal. Um, and about six weeks into our time in the Gulf, we moved from that platform onto the actual oil terminal itself, um, where a uh, containerised mini town had been established, uh, including accommodation and an operations room. And the whole idea behind that was that once we transitioned responsibility to the Iraqis, uh, it was important that they, didn't, they wouldn't have frigates or destroyers or cruisers where we could command and control from. They would need to do it from an operations room on that oil terminal to coordinate their patrol boats, small ships uh, operating in that space. Excellent. Thank you. And that's really interesting, the, the, the sort of shifting uh, command arrangements there. Um, the idea of operating off a, uh, off a barge is, is some, somewhat different to um, a, a large platform. Um, Bruce, uh, you clearly build on the, the foundations laid by your predecessors over the past uh, three and a half years. 
Can you talk a little bit about the the preparation of your team for this deployment um, and how this enables uh, enabled you to, to fulfill your mission? Yes, yeah, certainly, Richard. And uh, ours was the fourth command group rotation into either uh, Combined Task Force 158 or 158. And uh, the process of preparation matured quite significantly, I think, from, from Steve's initial uh, preparation for deployment. Uh, I was actually selected some nine months uh, for the command of that uh, command group uh, prior to the group deploying. Uh, we had our uh, task group commander and chief of staff also appointed to support me in preparation for that activity. Our command group itself was 32 strong, so I think by far the largest of the command groups that deployed uh, during that period. Uh, and it included everybody from a Commodore to an able seaman in rank, uh, from myself to an imagery analyst, to a bosun, uh, to intel officers, and of course, lawyers, uh, logistics personnel and so forth were all selected, uh, hand-picked by our team. Uh, and then we undertook a two-month workup in preparation uh, for our deployment uh, in uh, the Maritime Headquarters in Sydney, uh, but also undertaking necessary force preparation activities uh, with Army and uh, going through a process, as Steve indicated uh, previously, of uh, reviewing previous deployments, developing uh, our operating concepts, our campaign plan uh, in readiness for arriving in the area of operations. Uh, there was great benefit in doing it that way because we were one team. We were all working together on everything from small arms training to understanding the battle space, understanding what our mission would be. We were briefed by people who had deployed previously, such as uh, the then Captain Phil Spedding, who I think was Alan's uh, task group commander when he deployed prior to us. So we gained a, a really good understanding of uh, the area of operations that we were going into, and we felt quite confident that we were reasonably, or not reasonably, but certainly well prepared uh, for our mission. Uh, interestingly, the the final element of our workup period prior to uh, deploying into the Middle East was a mission readiness evaluation, which we undertook at HMAS Watson, and I think that was the first that was done by a task group. We utilised uh, fleet staff who had deployed previously into uh, Task Force 158 uh, to support us in that, a mock-up of uh, the operating, uh, or the operations room uh, on the oil terminal was established and we ran through a variety of scenarios, uh, emergency incident scenarios, uh, insurgent type activities that might, uh, that might uh, we might come across uh, during our deployment uh, in a, a day-long activity which was overseen by you know, Commodore Flotillas, the then Commodore David Johnson. Uh, that was very valuable in itself and we we're actually certified as a fleet unit to deploy which I think once again was the, the first time that that a command group had been certified to go on deployment. Uh, we then flew across the Middle East. Uh, we spent a week in Kuwait which is the normal process for Australian Defence Force units in once again completing their force preparation uh, on completion of that. Many of my staff then uh, transited directly up into the Northern Arabian Gulf uh, to commence working with the USN staff that were already there. Uh, I went down to Bahrain for a series of briefings with the Combined Maritime Force leadership and uh, <coughs> excuse me, and then went up uh, to join them. Within about three days of uh, 
of just shadowing, observing and participating with uh, our USN colleagues, uh, we're ready to assume command. So in summary, the preparation I felt was was excellent. Uh, we were very confident uh, prior to deploying and when we arrived, uh, things were very much as we anticipated. Uh, but picking up on Steve's point, obviously still very much alert to all of the issues that were were bubbling away at the time in, in that part of the world. It's, it's really interesting to hear the sort of the continuity that's coming across in terms of missions and things, but actually how the um, the preparations and I guess that continuity allows uh, sort of the improvements in in, in preparation um, of of each of these 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 um, task group commanders. Um, so coming back, Steve, uh, there were a variety of both sort of state and non-state actors um, which are posing were posing threats uh, to Allied operations up in the Northern Arabian Gulf. Um, can you talk a little bit about the this volatile, unpredictable kind of uh, maritime threat environment, um, and particularly in the wake of the um, coordinated multi-access small boat attack on these these key um, Iraqi oil terminals, which took place uh, about a year before you assumed command of Combined Task Force 58? Thanks, Richard. The, the hardest part of conducting counter-insurgency operations is identifying the enemy. Um, where are they? Who are they? Uh, you, without understanding them, their, their physical location, how they think, what they do, what their planning is, um, you, you will not get on the front foot. And uh, uh, immediately um, uh, I recognised the criticality of intelligence. Uh, intelligence formed the basis of, uh, of how we would generate our tactical planning and also our strategic activities um, in order to deter, um, detect and, and deny uh, the, the insurgents uh, access to the AOR in general, but uh, well, the area of operations um, uh, and, the, and the oil terminals that we've talked about um, specifically. Um, we, we placed an enormous amount of activity um, uh, on understanding the threat. Um, and to do the, we did that in many ways. Um, but one of the, the key activities, which was ongoing throughout our time in the, uh, in the Gulf region, was to engage um, locals, those that were at sea peacefully conducting maritime activities, primarily fishing, um, and the, the movement of cargo um, and people. Um, uh, it's referred to as, uh, as pattern of life or understanding pattern of life. And uh, we had daily patrols um, uh, in small boats across the, uh, the area of operations uh, with our people engaging, developing trust, um, working hard to, to gain access to their thinking. They will be the first to identify which boat normally isn't here or, or why or which one is acting in a strange manner? Is it conducting um, uh, surveillance in, in, ahead of an attack or is it setting up to, to actually conduct an attack? So that was, um, that was a vital part of, uh, of what uh, we had to do as it related to uh, uh, the threat. But uh, there was, uh, the threat was more than just the insurgency um, and, and, of course, there were state state um, actors at, at play. Uh, this particular um, area of operations um, uh, has a boundary with the uh, Iranians uh, and that boundary is contested in itself but also in very close proximity to one of those oil terminals. Um, 
and uh, we therefore had to understand um, and develop uh, tactics um, that would uh, uh, keep at arm's length, appropriate arm's length, or react accordingly to the threat posed by uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy, the IRGCN, uh, which would routinely cross that contested boundary uh, and approach uh, Task Force 58 forces in a provocative, probing manner, uh, which required a very careful, well-measured uh, response in order to ensure that uh, that uh, control was maintained and uh, an escalation was not uh, was not an outcome um, of those uh, of that particular activity. And and finally, as I touched on before, unlawful activity is is just the day to day norm. Um, I don't think there was a night that went by where small arms fire was not detected from somewhere um, in the uh, area of operations, uh, invariably um, resulting from or, or part of, uh, of piracy. There are a number of pirate attacks that under that, that were undertaken uh, during the time, and we had to respond uh, to that uh, right through to uh, wedding receptions that got out of control on the Al Four Peninsula. So. Uh, uh, we had to we had to understand that as well. Just just briefly coming back to, to I guess both the the non-state actor and the the last point you're making there about unlawful um, activity. How easy was it for for the um, task group and, and you as as the commander to gain an understanding of um, all of these sort of very complex um, uh, sort of patterns of behaviour that are, are going on uh, in this region. Uh, not easy and certainly impossible if you sit within your ships and uh, and ponder the problem. The uh, what we were required to do was get out and engage. As I mentioned earlier, um, uh, the majority of people that were uh, operating within the uh, in the uh, area of operations were good, decent people, um, and uh, and they wanted to maintain access to the maritime environment for their own uh, livelihoods. Uh, and they would be the first to help us uh, identify and thereby uh, respond or react to uh, that type of threat. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Alan, as we've just heard from from Steve, there was another key actor in, in the Gulf, and, and this is, um, as he was saying, uh, Iran. Um, you assumed command of Combined Task Force 158 not long after the notorious Cornwall incident Um in the Northern Arabian Gulf involving the British frigate HMS Cornwall. Um, not HMAS Cornwall, I'm getting, getting myself <laughs> muddled up here. Um, on what, uh, what actually, what took place? Um, and then, crucially, I guess, what was the impact of this on, on operations um, when you were uh, in, in charge of the combined task group? So as Steve has said, if you look at the situation up in the Northern Arabian Gulf, from our position on one side, we had uh, the Kuwaiti border, on the other side, we had the Iranian border, or ill-defined border, and the small slither of land, which was Iraq, with access to the sea, for which we had the you know, responsibility for maintaining its integrity. But it's important to know that the border between Iraq and Iran was remained contested. There was no agreement after you know, 2003 between Iraq and Iran on formally ratifying that contested uh, border. Um, so Iran had every right to operate in that space. It was its own national uh, border. But as Steve has said, you know, the Iranians would move freely between in that contested space. 
So what we had happened on the 23rd of March 2007 was that 15 uh, British personnel, and that was eight sailors and seven Royal Marines, they were busy doing a routine search of a vessel suspected of, uh, of smuggling, and they were doing that under the United Nations Security Council resolution. Um, and they just left the vessel, which they found to be in compliance, and uh, they were set upon by uh, a contingent of Iranian Revolutionary Coast Guard Navy personnel. So they, to be quite honest, they were caught unprepared um, and surprised, and they were taken hostage, effectively, or arrested uh, at gunpoint, the Iranians claiming that they were in Iranian uh, waters which throughout the, the saga was backwards and forwards as to were they in Iraqi or Iranian waters. But the bottom line, they were in contested waters. Um, certainly the Iranians used this to full effect to uh, parade them, to uh, eventually say in honour of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, they would be given back to Britain as a gift. Uh, so the, the Iranian president took, you know, used this to full advantage to humiliate Britain to, to a large extent. And when they returned home, the embarrassment was continued by a couple of members of the, uh, the, uh, the British team were allowed to sell their stories to the media, which did not go down well. So as a result, there was uh, both an, an internal Ministry of Defence inquiry, there was also a, uh, an all-party parliamentary inquiry, which described it as being a national embarrassment. Uh, the UK uh, first sea lord at the time, uh, Admiral Jonathan Band, described it as one bad day in our proud 400 years of uh, maritime history. Um, and certainly the, uh, the Ministry of Defence inquiry put it down to a combination of bad intelligence, um, inadequate training, uh, confusing communications, and indeed poor judgment on the part of senior military commanders. So as a result, the commanding officer of HMS Cornwall was uh, removed of his command. Um, and the UK then, you know, entered a whole period of they put a, uh, a stop to boardings uh, while they looked at their training, improving communications, their doctrine, and as I say, their training from both an individual and a collective perspective. And indeed, the first boarding of a British ship again in that area, certainly in the contested area, occurred during my time as CTF 158. And I might add that there was a very keen interest from Whitehall at the time, uh, wishing us good luck <laughs> for that first boarding. So I certainly wanted to make sure that I wasn't caught up in, in a similar incident. But it's also important to know that this wasn't the first time the Brits, uh, some years before, had had three boats up in that waterway, had been taken hostage uh, and then released. Uh, back in uh, December of 2004, HMAs Adelaide with a boarding team in that area. Al almost a similar incident, but they were able to reboard the vessel that they'd just left. Um, took a pretty firm line with the Iranians and held them off. And in fact, were then evacuated using an RAN helicopter. So fortunately, we didn't get into the same situation that the Brits got into. And I might say that in January 2016, many years later, um, 10 US sailors were taken in the vicinity of Farsi Island by, um, by the uh, IRGCN uh, for straying, you know, a navigational area into Iranian waters. So the bottom line is after all of that, our policy was very much one of de-escalation with Iran while being ready to seize the initiative if we had to, if we found ourselves, you know, in a similar circumstance. Uh, but ultimately, we needed to be prepared for anything the Iranians might throw at us. Very complicated um, uh, environment to be to be operating in. Um, 
Steve, you said that in addition to your responsibilities for, for maritime security operations, you were also responsible for the integration of Iraqi maritime forces into this um, task force mission. Can you explain a little bit about how this was done? Thanks, Richard. Yes, it was um, it was a vital part of our overall mission as we saw it, that uh, once we'd secured uh, those terminals using coalition forces and started to develop our intelligence and understanding of the insurgency threat, we now needed to look at the long term. Uh, we, we were not going to be there as a nation nor as a coalition uh, forever and uh, uh, the criticality of passing the baton to uh, to the Iraqi forces became very apparent. Uh, and over the course of our uh, months in the Gulf, we uh, spent a lot of time in uh, working with the Iraqi forces, the UK-led training force that was at the Umm Qasar naval base, providing a lot of individual training to Iraqi personnel, Navy personnel, um, uh, in order to develop... Um, what we called a transition roadmap. How are we going to take them from where they were then somewhere down the track, and we estimated to be at, at, at least uh, many months, if not years, uh, and it did, I guess, turn out to be the latter for good reason. Um, and we, we, we developed this uh, quite detailed transition roadmap with many individual actions and activities which needed to occur uh, that would trigger next steps uh, in the journey to uh, sovereign control. And um, uh, it perhaps was the most gratifying um, aspect um, of our time there that in the last, uh, last month, uh, we were able to, as a task group headquarters, conduct readiness evaluations of individual patrol boats. So it wasn't just saying, this is what you need to do. We were holding them to account that they needed to provide uh, capability in an ongoing uh, fashion. So we would actually con conduct what in Australia we would call an operational readiness evaluation or the like, uh, certifying a crew and a boat um, to participate in the coalition. And uh, they began to supplement. Uh, and then indeed, at the very end of uh, our tenure, uh, replace um, uh, coalition patrol boats. And they did a great job in defensive roles, in boarding activities, uh, and gained confidence in, in the process. We also, a second part to that was to uh, have them work uh, with uh, neighbouring countries, particularly Kuwait, um, uh, who they uh, were not on the best of terms uh, with, and we had to help them uh, build uh, trust both ways in order to work together uh, to to. Uh, to ensure that there wasn't a, uh, a seam between their borders. And, um, and we spent a lot of time uh, uh, working on with people of both Kuwait and Iraq um, to, to develop that. And again, towards the end of our time there, uh, we conducted an activity called Operation United River Dragon, which was a, um, a combined Iraqi-Kuwaiti uh, uh, coalition uh, patrol and uh, and uh, response activity down the KAA waterway. It was terrific to see, first time that it happened in a long time, and I think set the scene for ongoing um, activity. Excellent. Um, Alan, we're going to pick up on that with, with you. Um, so one of your four lines of, of operation um, as commander of Task Force uh, 158 was theatre security cooperation. 
Um, and this becomes increasingly important, building on, on, on what Steve's just been saying. Um, can you talk about the initiative that you led to, to further sort of repair and grow um, the maritime security relationship between Iraq and, and Kuwait? Well, certainly we were able to build on that, you know, the really good work that had been done, not only by Steve, but certainly by my predecessor, the UK uh, uh, Task Force Commander. So probably just stepping back, one of my key responsibilities as the Task Force Commander was very much the upwards and outwards to allow my Task Group Commander to run day-to-day operations. So I think that's that's important to differentiate. And my, my intent was to be able to allow the Task Group Commander to you know, do his job with as little interference as possible. And that worked well. Um, What we did find is that whilst we rotated the task force commander's role between the UK, the US and Australia, it seemed to be during the tenures of both UK and Australia that most of the work happened with Kuwait and getting Iraq and Kuwait to work together. And the reason being quite, from practical reasons, was that the US task force commander in a lot of cases was a a part-time task force commander. He was often not even in the Northern Arabian Gulf, so didn't have the ability to regularly get in and engage with the commanders in both Iraq and Kuwait. One of the other things looming during our period was while Steve had done that uh, that great work in the KIA waterway uh, doing a United Dragon exercise, we were getting to the point where we were about to hand that waterway back to the Iraqis uh, to be able to patrol and be responsible for as opposed to us leading in that space. And that made it even more important for there to be agreement between the Iraqis and the Kuwaitis on the delineation of that maritime border and the responsibilities between their respective navies and coast guards uh, so that when that handover occurred, uh, coordinated patrols would continue uh, on a nation-to-nation basis. So that was it. So relationships were key. Um, What we found that in the Middle East, it was important to build up relationships first with key commanders then you could actually tackle the hard questions of how you would move ahead. And that was a slow process. So it took me much of my my six months in theatre to be able to get to a point where I could get the Iraqis and the uh, Kuwaitis to sea in international waters on a British Royal Fleet Auxiliary ship, the the, uh, RFA Cardigan Bay, where we could actually lay a chart out on the table and really talk seriously about the delineation of that maritime border and how coordinated patrols would work into the future between the two nations. And uh, you know, I'm pleased to say that uh, my Brit counterpart who took over from me was able to pick up on that and make that happen. So that, that worked uh, effectively going forward? Absolutely, yeah. Excellent. Um, we're going to come back to, to you now, Bruce. Um, and, and I guess one of the, the key elements within any sort of sense of, of combined uh, uh task groups or, or anything of the combined task forces or anything like this um, is always around relationships um, and they're essential to make these kind of operations work. Can you talk a little bit about your um, both sort of coalition and national command chains and relationships um, and about the perhaps the, the challenges of commanding coalition forces and personnel from, from different nations? Certainly, Richard. And uh I think both Alan and Steve would have been in similar situations with the command chains that they were operating within. Uh, From my perspective, I I sat within a national command chain, an Australian command chain, and the uh, commander of uh, Joint Task Force 633 was our commander in the uh, area of operations, uh, an Australian Major General. 
And during my time in both uh, combined task forces, uh, 158 and 152, I had uh, two Australian major generals uh, in command of uh, Joint Task Force 633. Uh, in the operational space, in the, in the maritime space, I uh, was under the command of a US Navy Vice Admiral, a three-star officer, who was triple-hatted as Commander Fifth Fleet, uh, the US Naval Central Command's Maritime Component Commander, uh, the Combined Maritime Forces Commander, and indeed after the 31st of, uh, of December 2008, he became the Maritime Component Commander of, uh, of uh, uh, the force involved with uh, Iraq's maritime protection operations as well, specifically. So uh, I worked through uh, his Deputy Commander, uh, who was a, a Royal Navy Commodore, uh, under most circumstances, and worked liaised closely with him in uh, in in prosecuting the mission and ensuring that uh, that the commander, the operational commander, understood uh, you know what our roles were, what we were what we were undertaking, and uh, and any issues of concern that we might have with things such as um, what we call force flow, the number of of uh, fleet units that were available to us to protect the oil platforms or other issues of concern. That we might have. I, I would say that uh, my relationship with the US Navy uh, commander was excellent, as I'm sure both Steve's and Alan's were in, in their tenures in command. Uh, he was uh, very willing to allow me to uh, work uh, autonomously, uh, to get on with my job, and only in circumstances where I had you know, significant issues would I you know, rely upon either him or his deputy for advice or, or go to them. In the Australian context, uh, Joint Task Force 633, the headquarters was initially in Baghdad. It relocated down to Dubai during my time in the uh, area of operations. As I mentioned, two two-star commanders. I found it more challenging operating in that in that construct uh, because of the nature of how um, uh, the command organisation flowed up to Joint Operations Command in Australia, and uh, I must admit to occasions where I got myself into trouble with my national command organisation because uh, uh, I felt that uh, there wasn't the agility in that organisation that I was experiencing in the in the US naval organisation. And, and at times, as I'm sure Alan and Steve will agree, you needed to make decisions quickly and, uh, and so that was a concern. Within the task force itself, obviously, as both Steve and Alan have indicated, we had um, units of various nations at, at various times, uh, particularly in the Northern Arabian Gulf, uh, where we had uh, UK Royal Navy, US Navy, uh, RAN, uh, Iraqi Navy units and Singaporean Navy uh, units as well were participating. Uh, in 152, when I was uh, subsequently down in that area, we had French and, and uh, Gulf State navies who were also uh, employed in, in that task force. And my role, as Alan had indicated, uh, with his specific role in 158, was to really get out and to allow the task group commander to undertake the day-to-day -day operations, but to undertake that, that security cooperation role, which was all important to enhancing the ability in 158 of the task force to do its job, but to once again, meet that other line of operation, which was to enhance the Iraqi Navy's ability to take on that maritime security role. Uh, but in 152, subsequently, it was more about engaging the Gulf state navies, Qatar, uh, UAE, Kuwait once again, 
uh, and Bahrain in taking a greater role in their own security, security opera, maritime security operations. And so it was all important that uh, I was sea-riding ships, I was flying in helicopters from meetings with heads of Navy uh, across the Gulf uh, to ensure that uh, you know, we were being supported and we were supporting them in, in their day-to-day roles. Just picking up briefly um, on the, the remarks you said about the, the differences between the, the two chains of, of command, um, was the, why, did you, why might you feel that the, um, there was that agility within the, the, the naval chain of command um, that, that perhaps wasn't necessarily always there um, within other chains of command? Is that something that, that's a, a naval, um, uh, something that is, is cooperation between navies? Um, or, or is there, there anything else that, that you see that, that might, might explain that? I, I think your point about cooperation between navies is all important because, because of the fact we'd worked with the USN in the past in particular and the Royal Navy, of course. Uh, we understood each other. We understood what our intent was and how we would operate. Uh, I must admit my experience with uh, Joint Task Force 633, the Australian chain of command, was my first and indeed my first in a tri-service joint type activity and it was a real education for me in in observing how uh, a headquarters of that nature would operate and how you would work your way through that organisation. The other thing I'd just like to mention briefly at the the tactical level, which I I didn't before but some of your listeners might find humorous, uh, is that on the oil terminal itself, and Alan indicated we were, you know, by the time I'd arrived we'd moved into these containers on board this oil terminal. We also had the, what was called the South Oil Company, which was operating this oil terminal on a day-to-day basis. So there are there oil company workers on the platform. We had Iraqi Marines who were providing point defence. We also had US Navy personnel who were providing uh, security detachment and CBs, their, their construction engineers. It was a, a mini League of Nations, if you like, on sitting on board this oil terminal. But uh, I became euphemistically known as the mayor of chaos, you know, of this oil terminal, because at times I was managing disputes between Iraqi Marines and oil terminal oil terminal workers over lo- provision of loaves of bread or whether whether washing machines worked or whatever, and but then equally out and about engaging with heads of navy and 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 so forth. So it was a very interesting dynamic, and I must admit, in our preparation for the mission, we we never learnt about some of those. Uh, uh, extraordinary and uh, and extracurricular activities that we needed to undertake as part of that role. Oh, that's fascinating. These are the kind of things that that don't normally come up when we we read about um, what goes on. Uh, you don't expect uh, uh, commanders of, of task forces to be negotiating between uh, Iraqi mich- marines and and um, uh, oil platform workers. Um, that's great. Thank you, um, Alan. Uh, coming on and kind of sort of developing uh, this this sort of train. Um, when you uh, remained on in command of um, CTF-158 uh, with a US Navy task group commander and staff for a further two months after your Australian task group commander and battle staff will return home, can you comment a little bit about this interoperability, and I think we've already touched on it a bit with, with Bruce, um, between maritime forces in the Northern Arabian Gulf, particularly between the US, the Australians, and the British, in terms of ships and staff, and any restrictions um, that things like communication systems, rules of engagement, etc., uh, imposed on on these navies. 
Uh, as we spoke before about you know the re relationship with Iraq and with with uh, Kuwait, it was all about mutual trust and respect and building up relationships. It was no different in the coalition maritime space. Working for a U.S. commander in uh, in Bahrain, working closely with his deputies, working with the forces that were at hand up in the northern Arabian Gulf, was all about relationships. That was probably the biggest thing. And as a result. Um, I accompanied my team back to Australia at the end of the Australian rotation, um, had a, a brief uh, you know, week's leave and then returned to the Gulf for a further two months just with my chief of staff and one Australian member to support me. Uh, and that was based on that respect and trust that had been built up. The US were very keen for the US CTF who was meant to come in to command the US task group commander. They wanted to send him off to the Horn of Africa for a more pressing uh, role there. And they asked Australia whether I could stay on and now head a US task group. So that was the first time we'd split the CTF and CTG from one nation between nations. Um, I'd had in my mind for a while that we would probably get into a stage where eventually we could do that. But ultimately, I wanted to get to a position where we could have a completely integrated coalition task group and task force. And we eventually got there some years down the track. But I think this was the first step to having a, an Australian task force commander with a US task group. Um, and um, as far as communication systems, I think by that stage, the Coalition Wide Area Network, or COWIN, had become well and truly established, was working well. So communications at the tactical level between ships, between headquarters was working really well. Um, the whole issue of using chat rooms, which if I think back to 2001 when I was there, it was a whole new ball game for people, understanding how to best make use of those. Uh, I saw a much more mature use of chat rooms and real-time chat by the time um, I went back there in 2007. Um, there was always going to be a balance between national and coalition requirements, and that comes down to you know, for example, British ships would be rotated in and out of the Northern Arabian Gulf going off to do national tasking, be it selling arms to Saudi Arabia or supporting various, you know, various exercise activities around the Gulf. But that was the nature of the, the game and we'd work around that. Um, rules of engagement, what I tended to do both when I was there in 2001 and in 2007 was to run a matrix where by and large ROE was common between the nations, but there were some subtle differences. I think back to 2001 where the Canadians, for example, couldn't enter Iranian claimed territorial waters, um, and that all had to do with their disputes with the US up in, up in Arctic waters, so they were very cognizant of those sorts of requirements. And that's just an example where you would be aware of that, so when you tasked various you know, forces and vessels, you knew where you could use things to best effect. Uh, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Steve, we're going to pull back a little bit now. Um, you later went on to become Commander Australian Fleet. Uh, can you comment on the, the long, sort of the impact that this long and, and substantial commitment in terms of major surface combatants uh, to operations in the Gulf had on, on the fleet and sort of in wider terms? Richard, there can be no doubt that, uh, as you say, uh, such a significant commitment over a long period of time uh, will have impact, enduring impact. And, uh, and I was able to see that um, when taking up that position as Fleet Commander in 2009 and indeed just months after Bruce and his team returned from that final um, command um, deployment. Um, 
On the positive side, and they were mostly positives, uh, I saw a fleet that had uh, a, an operational focus. It had a role. It was doing what it, uh, what fleets, uh, what naval fleets um, uh, could and should be uh, doing. It had a purpose, and uh, uh, this created uh, a circumstance where at least uh, a good portion of uh, of those in the fleet frigate crews, those in sea training group, um, those in maritime headquarters and sustainment uh, organisations uh, were achieving significant job satisfaction. Um, at the end of the day, that's what they joined the Navy to do and they, they were part of a fleet that was doing it. Um, we, we certainly had uh, a very noticeable improvement in our knowledge and professional capability for the conduct of maritime security operations particularly, and the complexity uh, associated with that that we've each talked about um, uh, today. Uh, we had new equipment and, and new tactics and new training uh, processes in place, which had been evolved over a number of, of years, so a more capable fleet in, in those, uh, those areas. We had um, uh, found a, a new place uh, for intelligence. I think everyone uh, in the fleet at that time uh, understood the criticality of intelligence. And indeed, in the, in the period of time uh, between my command in the Gulf and me uh, becoming the fleet commander, we had established an intelligence uh, primary qualification for officers. Uh, prior to that, it was, um, it was almost a part-time activity uh, for officers of other specialisations. Uh, now it was... Uh, where it needed to be a specialisation in itself, and we had confidence uh, in in uh, in intelligence uh, forming part of of what we had to do, a critical part of what we had to do. Um, uh, so, so mostly very good. We, we of course had a, a reputation uh, amongst our allies that was also improved, and we've talked about that a lot. Uh, today, uh, for very good reason, we, our standing in the international community was uh, was uh, significantly improved. But uh, there are negatives. There has to be, uh, and uh, and and I found uh, a fleet um, that, uh, in in a number of ways, uh, was was showing um, the signs of uh, of of hard work um, uh, and unrelenting work as it related to sustainment uh, of of a number of fleet. Uh, assets and um, and and we found some subsequent difficulties in maintaining uh, those units at, at appropriate levels of, of readiness. Um, we we also had um, uh, issues uh, as it related to uh, broader um, uh, professional uh, capabilities, such as in anti-submarine warfare and uh, anti-air warfare, more complex uh, warfighting scenarios that we had for years practised, focused on, um, uh, th they were diluted as a consequence of focus um, uh, in, in our Middle East area of operations. Um, so we had to rebuild um, on, on those. Um, but, but overall, I found a fleet uh, that was more confident, more ready, um, and, uh, and had greater pride in what it did. Thank you. That's, that's fascinating, particularly the, the sort of both the, the positives and the, the impact it has on, on other types of operations. Um, it, it's something that, that is, is often discussed, but it, it's really interesting to hear specific examples like this. Um, Bruce, 
immediately after you assumed command of, of CTF uh, Combined Task Force 158 in October 2008, there was a, a high degree of uncertainty concerning Australia's ongoing tenure um, and the deployment of RAN vessels into Iraqi waters. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about um, about what was going on at this time? Yes, certainly, Richard. Uh, since 2003, uh, the multinational forces had operated within Iraq, including Iraqi territorial waters and airspace, under various mandates provided by UN Security Council resolutions. Uh, through 2008, UN Security Council Resolution 1790 was in place, but it expired on the 30, at midnight on the 31st of December 2008. During the year, it became increasingly apparent that uh, the Iraqi government was wanting to take on a greater role for its own security and was unwilling to provide another mandate for another 12 months or whatever for the multinational forces to remain within Iraq. Hence, uh, the US in particular and the UK commenced uh, working with the Iraqi government on establishing status of forces agreements to enable uh, their forces to remain within Iraq. Australia did likewise. Uh, from about October onwards, we had a delegation in Baghdad led by Major General Mick Crane, and they were attempting to uh, establish a similar agreement with Iraq. But we're in a queue of a, a number of nations with similar aspirations, and uh, and by December 2008, it was becoming increasingly clear that uh, our, our status of forces agreement was not going to be secured by the end of the month, and therefore uh, we would not be permitted to remain in uh, territorial waters, nor indeed would our uh, RAAF P3 Orion aircraft be able to overfly Iraq undertaking you know, reconnaissance missions, nor our frigate, uh, which was part of Combined Task Force 158, remain as well. Therefore, uh, we started to look at uh, alternatives for the uh, the Task Force Command Group because we'd only been in, in the theatre for essentially a couple of months. And given that the US Navy was going to... in uh, take over from us back up in uh, in Iraqi territorial waters. So I started informally to engage uh, with the Combined Maritime Force headquarters and uh, up through my Australian uh, command chain to, dis to see if we were able to take on command of uh, Combined Task Force 152, which at that stage was being led by the US Navy as well. Uh, that was agreed and, uh, and subsequently in late December, uh, we received an executive order to uh, pull out of uh, our headquarters uh, on the oil terminal and to relocate to Bahrain to, uh, to take command of Combined Task Force 152. Uh, prior to that, I'd sent a small Tiger team down into Bahrain to get a sense of what the mission was, uh, to look at the logistics and so forth, how many of my staff would remain of the 32 that we initially deployed with, and, uh, and we developed a plan for uh, relocating into a new command role. So on the 29th of December 2008, my command group and I uh, left the oil terminals and departed Iraqi territorial waters. And at 23.59 uh, local on the 31st of December, uh, HMOs Parramatta, which was the Australian frigate in the task force at that time, uh, departed the area of operations and, and relocated into uh, combined Task Force 152. 
So all of your your superb preparation uh, prior to this, it obviously it fed through very nicely into the first part of your mission, but then circumstances as ever threw a, a bit of a spanner in the works and, and, and you had to, to sort of uh, adapt. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, um, firstly, about what the... Um, the differing mission of, of Combined Task Force 152 is just so our, re- our listeners can can understand um, the, the sort of complexities of this. Um, and then a little bit about what it meant for, for your staff and what the challenges were of this, this transition. Yeah, I could say that uh, from the 1st of January 2009, the Combined Task Force 152 area of operations grew significantly to incorporate almost all of uh, the Arabian Gulf, with the exception of Iraqi territorial waters, which obviously stayed under the uh, security umbrella of uh, the US Navy at that time. So the area of operations we stretched from the northern Arabian Gulf down to the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, we, as a uh, task group, oh, sorry, task force command group, were attempting to learn as much as we possibly could about the mission prior to uh, going in command. The lines of operation were fundamentally similar to those for 158, except in 158 you could see, you could see what your mission was. It was it was the defence of the oil platforms. It was the countering of insurgent operations and counter piracy. With 152, it still included theatre security cooperation, as I mentioned earlier, with uh, engaging the other Gulf states in in enhancing their their maritime security. Uh, but also there was a counter-piracy element to it, a counter-smuggling element to it, and uh, and that, that broad stretch of water that was uh, the Gulf, which was you know, our responsibility for uh, for managing. Uh, we weren't, we obviously weren't as well prepared for that role as we were for 158. Uh, I took 10 of my staff uh, into that headquarters situation Correction, I took 17 of my staff. Uh, there were 10 USN staff already uh, with a task group commander uh, in Bahrain uh, running the task group. Uh, as Alan indicated, I think in his his um, answer to one of your questions, Richard, the, the combined task force commander for 152 was actually the, the carrier strike group commander of the Theodore Roosevelt carrier strike group and he was in the Arabian Sea and he really, literally only came into Bahrain for the handover and then headed back out to his his uh, carrier strike group and so there was a US Navy captain who was the task group commander he became my task group commander my 17 staff integrated with his 10 it just amazed me how they ran this task force you know from day to day with 10 staff and they had two UAE and one Bahraini staff officers they were dreadfully stretched in in what they were doing and so my 17 really supplemented uh, their staff but it was very challenging for us because at that time, uh, the counter, uh, the Somali piracy activity was increasing. Combined Task Force 151, which was the counter piracy mission, was growing, uh, as was Combined Task Force 150, which was counter smuggling uh, operations down the uh, uh, down towards the the northeast coast of Africa from Pakistan, and so the emphasis as far as um, allocation of, of resources, fleet units and so forth was very much into those two missions. So I found at times that the number of units that I had under my command diminished down to two or three. Uh, at times with exercises and so forth, it might have gone up to a dozen, but it was it, it fluctuated greatly and it was a very challenging mission from that perspective. Our Australian rules, rules of engagement weren't uh, appropriate for that mission and so once again it was very hard because uh, at times I had to literally chop uh, or my units, American units in particular, used 
had to change operational command from my command to US Navy command to execute activities and then change back to my command because because the US Navy or the US rules of engagement were much more flexible and enabled them to complete complete the mission. So in essence, it was a significant challenge uh, and um, we were ill-prepared for it at the time, uh, but I think the professionalism of my team uh, enabled us to complete it in, a, in an effective way. Excellent. Thank you very much. That's a, It's a really interesting uh, dynamic going on there in terms of, of, of the, the sort of shifting missions um, and how effectively... Uh, become you sort of become prepared for for one mission, um, and then the challenge is posed by by the shift to a, to a slightly different one. Um, so on the thirtieth of April two thousand and nine, the Iraqi Navy finally assumes control assume control of the Kawar Alamaya um, oil terminal uh, with a ceremony held on this uh, platform that we've we've heard so much about. Um, although. American and British forces continue to provide training and assistance in support of future security transfers. The Australian maritime contribution in Iraqi waters, as we've heard, ended on the 31st of December 2008. The lessons of almost two decades of maritime operations in the Gulf are many and varied. Um, To conclude, can I ask the panel for their thoughts on the strategic importance and the legacy of the RAN's maritime cooperation? Uh, contribution in the Northern Arabian Gulf between 2003 and 2009. Um, I'll start with you, Steve, and then move on to to Alan and Bruce. Thanks, Richard. I think at the highest level, the RAN was a better Navy as a consequence of it. It was a Navy that was more operationally experienced. I think there was greater confidence uh, in what we we do and how we do it. Um, Many lessons learned and applied over, over time, whether they be uh, the consequence of some of those negatives that I uh, that I saw, they were lessons and they were applied and they may not have been seen uh, or identified if we hadn't been in that circumstance. Um, and I think uh, we were better able to lead at the at the more strategic level um, as a consequence of we thought differently. We had leaders that were exposed to something different uh, uh, that uh, than in the past. And finally, um, our improved levels of interoperability, demonstrated interoperability uh, with key allies such as the US particularly and, uh, and also the U- UK, uh, where our reputation uh, as a professional naval service was strengthened. Thank you. Alan? I've got to pick up on that in, in enhanced interoperability. I think that the, you know, the seamless integration of Australian, US and, and UK units and staffs, I might add, you know, we operated together for the best part of 20 years. So those, you know, professional and personal relationships were developed. And and from the US side, we, you know, in the Pacific always operated with the Pacific US Navy, but had very little contact prior to that period with the Atlantic Navy from the US. And the two operated quite differently. In fact, even the Pacific and the Atlantic Navy found it difficult to work with each other sometimes within a US Navy context. But that opened that that relationship up as well. And I've got to say with the Brits, you know, up to the uh, British withdrawal east of Suez in the early 70s, we operated day in, day out with the, the UK forces in, in the Far East and uh, in Southeast Asia. That had all stopped. And But the 20 years from 1990-ish onwards, you know, we re-established those close operational links with the RN. And I think that stood us in great stead as we've developed that, you know, one-on-one relationship with the Royal Navy from there on in. And I've got to just add, finally, Singapore into the equation. You know, we've worked closely in our region with Singapore. Um, We were able to operate operationally with them 
you know, at a distance as well. And that, that was great. Thank you. Finally, Bruce? I think, Richard, from a broad strategic perspective, the Combined Maritime Force managed to secure those two oil platforms for Iraq and maintained that flow of oil out of Iraq that is so vital to uh, the economic fortunes of that nation. And if, if not for that, if, if uh, an insurgent operation had been successful and the flow of oil had been prevented, who knows what might have happened internally within Iraq. And so I think elements of the RAN and our coalition partners succeeded through that period in, in sustaining the ongoing development of Iraq post the conflict in 2003. Thank you. Um uh, and that's a, a really interesting point point to end on. We've we've gone from from the the impact on the RN through to to the the, the sort of broader impact on on the the wider um, operation in, in Iraq itself. Um, regrettably, that's all we've got time for. My thanks to Steve Gilmore, Alan Dutrois, and Bruce uh, Kafer. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us and if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.